Good afternoon. My name is Michael, and I serve as one of the elders of the church. It's so good to be with you this afternoon and preach God's word. If you have your Bibles, please open to Titus 2. We're going to be in Titus 2, verses 1 through 6. Let me start with a question. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? Now, some of you are thinking, I'm already grown up, and I already am what I am. Perhaps others of you, maybe if you're in university, you're thinking about that question. Yeah, when I'm older, what are the things I'm going to do? What will I accomplish? Maybe even if you're a little kid, you're not even thinking about that question at all. Maybe it's a question your parents ask you. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? For some of you, uh, I can imagine some of you wanted to be astronauts and to go into space when you got older. Maybe others of you wanted to be politicians or presidents and to change the world through public policy. Um, I'm sure there's some, especially young men, who thought that when they grew older they'd be a professional football player. And soon those dreams crashed and burned. Um, for me, if you ask me that question, what did I want to be when I grew up? The, the answer was that I wanted to be a doctor. And for some of you, you're thinking, yes, you're you know, half Indian, so that makes sense, that that was part of your aspiration. And my parents, uh, both Asian, did encourage that in my life, to consider being a doctor. Even when my sister got married to my brother-in-law, uh, my parents finally were relaxed. They said, we finally have a doctor in the family. Um, but that's not what I became. I didn't become a doctor. I have nothing against doctors. I think a doc becoming a doctor is a great vocation for some to pursue. But for me, I realized when I was 18 that my motives in my vocation, what I wanted to do, they were uh, distorted from what the Bible presents to us. It was when I was reading this book um, by John Piper. It's called Don't Waste Your Life that really I was confronted with a different teaching than what I was used to. It was a teaching that said that my desires for success and comfort and pleasure were really displaced desires. That really there was kind of a bigger picture for what God designed me to be as a human being and as a Christian. And that was a, a life, no matter what you're doing, it was a life that was lived under the realization that God is real and that he really is the one who deserves all the glory, that he's the one that we're supposed to orient our lives towards. And when I put down that book by John Piper, really I realized that my life at that point was kind of self-centered. I wanted to be a doctor, not to help people, because I thought it was a vocation that you made a lot of money. You could have a comfortable life with. And really now, I think I've even realized that that question, what do you want to be, maybe should be replaced by another question, which is who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? Now, as we turn to Titus, we've seen in chapter 1, we saw that truth, especially the truth of the gospel, transforms who we are. And then we saw that even some of those people, Christians who have been transformed by the gospel, should actually be called to be elders of the church to protect and proclaim the gospel for the church. And last week, if you were here with us, we saw that there's especially a need for elders to do this job because there's other people who want to teach the church. 
And those are false teachers. And we saw the fruit of these false teachers. It was that whole families were ruined. Ruined. Today we're in chapter 2. And chapter 2 is in many ways a contrast to the last section we were in. So let's read it together. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Friends, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know that you are worthy of all praise and honor and glory, especially because you're the God who has spoken to your people. And we do not deserve your words that have been written down for us in Holy Scripture, words that you've given us for both to know you and also to know how to live in light of you. But we thank you that you love sinners like us, and so you've instructed us how to live as a church, how to live with one another. We pray, we ask that you would help us now listen and to learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 1, Paul gives the primary command of this passage. Look at verse 1, you'll see it there. But as for you, teach. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. You could say the main point of this sermon is that we're to teach sound doctrine to transform the church. Teach sound doctrine to transform the church. Now, I'm sure you're thinking, you know elders are supposed to teach. That's what we saw in chapter 1. Elders are to teach the church. In chapter 1, you also saw that false teachers apparently teach, though they're supposed to be rebuked. Here we see in verse 1 that Paul is addressing Titus. He's saying, but as for you, you teach. He's supposed to teach. In verse 3, though, if you look a little further down, we also see that older women are to teach in the church. They're supposed to teach younger women. And then we see in this passage, and really through the book of Titus, that teaching is essential to the ministry of the church. It's so important. We can't miss this. Verse 1, we also see that it's not just any teaching, as we saw in chapter 1. Some teaching is really bad for the church. It's detrimental to the church. It's a particular kind of teaching. In verse 1, we see it's teaching that accords with sound doctrine. Titus is to teach what's appropriate or what's fitting with God's word. And as we'll see in verses 2 through 6, it's not so much that Titus is to teach Christians what they're supposed to do. You'll see a repeated phrase throughout these verses. He's supposed to teach Christians who they're supposed to be. Look at verse 2. Older men are to be. 
In verse 3, older women are to be. Verses 4 and 5, younger women are to be. Verse 6, younger men are, there it is again, to be. Paul is not giving Titus a kind of list of commands he needs to obey. He's saying these are characteristics that Christians are to embody. So what we have here is not what some of you love. I I myself love them, to-do lists. You know, I love crossing off a good to-do list. That's not what this passage is. Instead, this is a to-be list. And at the heart of this passage are kind of two questions. Who are men supposed to be? And who are women supposed to be? So friends, I have three points. I hope it's easy to follow along. The first one is we're going to look at older men. That's in verse 2. Then in verses 3 through 5, we're going to look at older women. And lastly, we'll close by looking at younger men in verse 6. So verse 2, we see that older men are to be godly. That's the first thing that Paul teaches us. Let's look at verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So older men, if you're here in this room, Paul is talking to you. Now, if you know, if you've looked through our membership directory, we actually have a pretty young congregation. And so most of you are thinking, well, I'm not an older man. Maybe I can just tune out of this part of the sermon. Um, If you're a man in this room, this especially applies to you either way because Paul's presenting to you a picture of who you're supposed to be when you're older. If you're a woman in this church, this certainly applies to you. If you're a mother, you're raising children, maybe you have boys, they need to know who they're supposed to be. If you're a sister in the church, either way, you should have an idea of what a man's supposed to be like. And Paul helps us by giving us four characteristics Four characteristics for older men. First, he says, you're to be sober-minded. Now, this might mean you don't get drunk, and that's one interpretation. I think it's appropriate. Later, as you'll see, he'll address older women and say they're not to be slaves to much wine. It could also mean that you're level-headed, you're restrained, you're a clear thinker. Either way, we actually see in 1 Timothy 3, this is a characteristic, sober-minded, that's applied to elders. Elders are required to be sober-minded. So it means you don't make careless decisions. You're not leaving work to get drunk with your colleagues. And sadly, as you know, and I know, this does not characterize a lot of older men in our societies. And yet, as Christians, it's supposed to characterize them. Second, he says you're to be self-controlled. Or excuse me, he says you're to be dignified. So older men are to be men who are worthy of respect and honor. A lot of cultures, just by being an older man, you kind of demand respect. Hey, I've reached a certain age. You need to respect me. It's kind of the opposite here. Paul's saying as an older man, you're supposed to demand respect by your godly character. It should be who you are that people look at and think, I should respect that person. The last thing, um, the last two, he says, one is self-controlled. You're going to see that's applied to every age group in this passage. It's actually something that he requires of elders in 1 Timothy 3. It's repeated, self-control, five times in this chapter. Five times. And you kind of wonder, why this characteristic, self-controlled over and over and over again? 
But if you remember last week, uh, we remember that Paul quoted that Cretan prophet, right? And that Cretan prophet said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Kind of giving us an insight into the Cretan culture. And there it kind of makes sense a little bit. Okay, that's what the Cretans are like. This is a letter to Titus who is in Crete. And so self-control kind of gets highlighted as a Christian virtue. Paul applies it to all the groups, but he begins with the older men. They must be known for their self-control. That last trait Paul considers, if you look in verse 2, is sound. Another way to translate this would be healthy. And so Paul's saying that your faith in God, your love for God and your neighbor, your steadfastness or your endurance through hard times and suffering should be models to the church. So here we have in just two verses, four characteristics, kind of a portrait for the church, a picture of biblical manhood. And there's lots of teaching on biblical manhood out there. Um, really, it's, it's talked about a lot. We have a lot of different ways we could go, and even if you're not thinking about biblical manhood, certainly we have kind of an image of manhood that's presented in movies and media. So it's important for all of us, especially men, to consider is our idea of manhood, is that lined up with what Scripture presents to us as what manhood should be? Um, it was about 10 years ago that the Mexican government uh, made an intelligence report that was obtained by a magazine. And so they published the findings. The findings were surprising, especially as a Christian. So in the findings, they, they realized that a best-selling book on biblical manhood was actually required reading for the gang members of this drug cartel called La Familia, which I think means the family. I don't know Spanish, but I think that's what that phrase means. The leader of the gang, his name was El Mas Loco, uh, and I think this means the craziest one. And he was obsessed with this book on biblical manhood. He loved it. He made everyone read it, particularly uh, a couple phrases that he loved. One was the book touted that God designed men to be dangerous. Dangerous. Imagine if you're reading Titus 2, and the first thing Paul said was older men are to be dangerous. You would think, huh, I'm not sure what that means, but that's what this book was teaching, and the drug cartel loved it. The second phrase was that every man must have a, a battle, a battle to fight and an adventure to live. I don't know if you're a man here. Maybe you hear that and you think, yeah, that's awesome. Like every man should be a UFC fighter or, you know, boxing somebody. Um, and the drug cartel loved it. Uh, and I think uh, something we learned from this is certainly that if a drug cartel can use our teachings on biblical manhood, maybe we've missed things just a little bit, right? We need to go to the scriptures. And it's especially important because every one of us, whether we have a father who is absent or a father who is always with us, teaching us the scriptures, showing what it meant to be a godly man, every one of us has a picture, an idea in our minds of what it means to be a godly man. And every one of us is a little off. Some of us, by God's grace, had great pictures. Yet all of us need to look in Scripture and to conform in our mind our image with what the Bible portrays. So brothers, older men in the room, let me ask you, are you an example of a godly man? 
The Bible, as you can see, characterizes your character over your accomplishments, your godliness over your education and your vocation. And I think there's, um, by God's grace, there's lots of godly men that I can think of who match what Titus is told here to think of. Let me commend two older uh, saints in the church. They're older elders. If you think about our elder board, there's four of us who are uh, in our 30s and two of us that I think qualify as older men. One of them's Uncle Frank. He came to faith as an older man. In many ways, he's a model of dignity that Paul presents here, maturity that our church can look to. As you know, um, this brother works full-time as an accountant, and yet he gives part of his time, some extra time, to shepherd Covenant Hope Church. So watch this brother, friends, especially young men in the church. Watch this brother. See how he cares for his family, cares for his wife. See how he endures hardship and suffering and continues to follow Jesus. He's a model to us, so I commend him to you. And I would encourage you also, pray for more older men in the church to aspire to be elders of Covenant Hope Church. As you see, there's some overlap here between the godly character he's saying that older men are to be, and in chapter 1, what we see elders are to be. The other brother, you can probably guess, the other older brother is uh, Brian Parks, who's our senior pastor. Now, if you played football or frisbee with Brian, you would not think of him as an older man. He is outrunning most of the younger men in the church. But he's not just a model to us of physical fitness, but of spiritual soundness. And that's what Paul presents here to Titus. Brian has walked the Christian life a long time, over 30 years, with faith in God, love for the local church. So let your understanding of sound doctrine, friends, be shaped by his faithful sermons week after week after week. Let me commend both these brothers to you church as older men to emulate. In verses 3 through 5, Paul is going to transition. So the older men, they've kind of been talked to. Now he's going to transition to older women. And what we see in verses 3 through 5 are that older women are to be godly. But he adds a little more. They're to be godly teachers. Look at verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Now, again, he's addressing older women. So older women, Paul's talking to you right now. And I'm not going to call out who the older women are in the church. I think uh, you get in trouble for things like that. Um, But if you are an older woman, you kind of know who you are, right? Just like with the men, Paul addresses your godly character first. That's the first thing he talks about. You need to be reverent in behavior. Now, reverent in behavior, um, this is in many ways a contrast to the false teachers, if you think about chapter 1. In fact, Paul ends that chapter saying these false teachers, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Instead, older women are called to be reverent in their behavior. That means that their actions should match and kind of model the faith that they have for God. Paul also says that you're not to be a gossip or a drunk. So many, many older women in lots of cultures, they kind of have this reputation for knowing everybody's business, right? 
Paul says that if you care about other people, you con you're concerned about them, don't let that turn to slander or gossip. It's easy for that to happen. Again, he says, you know, drinking's not a sin. That's not what Paul's saying here. But he's saying that it can quickly lead to drunkenness, which of course is a sin. And neither of these, gossip or drunkenness, are fitting of older Christian women. But if you look in verse 3, Paul actually goes beyond the godly character. And he talks about the teaching of women in verse 3. Look at verse 3. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. So if you think about, back to chapter 1, teaching is essential to elders in the church. Here in chapter 2, we find that teaching is not exclusive to elders in the church. God actually commands godly women to teach other women in the church. So friends, if you're a part of a church, maybe this isn't your, your home church, where women aren't teaching other women, that is not a healthy church, according to Paul. Women must be teaching women in the church. And younger women, which is actually probably most of the people in the room right now, you're mentioned in this passage, if you notice. If you think kind of your first day of university classes, your teacher hands you a, a syllabus with the curriculum, you know, what you're supposed to learn from the class, kind of the core objectives. That's kind of what you have here in this passage. Younger women, you're getting to read the things that you're supposed to be learning from older women in the church. You're to learn, Paul says, what it means to love your husbands and children. That's the first thing. Now, in many homes, I think uh, children come before spouses, but for Paul, he lists husbands first, showing a biblical priority here. And we also live in a world that says, you know, women focus on your own happiness first. Paul seems to say women focus on loving your families. Paul also says you're to learn self-control and purity from older women. The Cretan culture particularly was known for sexual immorality even in marriage. Cretan women were known for um, being sexually immoral outside of marriage. So it seems Paul here is arguing for a Christian sexual ethic. And he actually wants older women to be talking to younger women about biblical sexuality. And I know that in many cultures, that's just something you do not talk about with anybody, especially somebody older. Paul's teaching us here that our sexuality must flow or follow from sound doctrine, and that's why women need to teach other women about this. Now, in verse 5, there's kind of a tricky phrase here. A few members have asked me about it already. Paul says, older women are to train younger women to be working at home. Now, what in the world does this mean? Especially in today's age, many of um, the wives here probably have jobs and are working outside the home. Um, Paul, let me just say it off the bat, he's not saying that women can't work outside the home. That's nowhere in this passage. If you see what he says, he says that women are to be working in the home. So he's actually not saying anything about outside the home. And it's even kind of a luxury of our modern economies to assume that women should not work outside the home. For most of Christianity, women had to work outside the home. They just had to do it. 
And if you think about kind of that quintessential picture of biblical womanhood that's found in Proverbs 31, what's she doing? She's working outside the home. She's going to the market, buying fields. She's trading garments. She's presented in Proverbs 31 as an excellent wife. Now, if you look at Proverbs 31, you'll notice, though, everything she does outside the home is actually for the sake of the home. So her husband is cared for, Proverbs 31 says. Her children rise up. They call her blessed. So her work outside the home does not compromise her work inside the home. It actually assists her to do the very thing that God's calling her to do. So as we think about Titus 2, as we kind of turn back here, what we see Paul saying is, here are the priorities of a godly woman. Their priorities. You could kind of think of it this way. She is first a Christian, of course, with her life oriented towards God. Then if she's married, she's a wife. And if she's a mom, then she's a mother. So her husband comes before her children. Her home comes before her work. But her home does not mean that she doesn't work. Now, I think it's important to say, um, you know, if a wife's working outside the home just because she finds kind of a career outside the home as more fulfilling, I do think Paul would have a problem with that. Or if a wife is working outside the home so the couple can kind of afford more nicer luxuries in life, I think, again, Paul would have a, a problem with that. It seems Paul's giving us the principle, and of course it's open for us to apply it to our lives. And I do trust this will just look different in every family. There's lots of different ways to be faithful to this command. So let me encourage the young women who are here, uh, particularly the wives and the mothers, whether you work outside the home or not, your work in the home is so important. And I know um, my wife, you know, she's a stay-at-home mom. Um, She actually does work in the home for her mom um, on marketing and things like that. But so many times, working at home can seem like this burden Uh, But the Bible presents it as a blessing. So especially the husbands in the room who are married to younger moms, uh, it's our job to help support them in this vocation that's been given to them by God because God himself has particularly gifted them to care for husbands, for children, and for the home. And this is so often a thankless vocation. So let me just encourage you, if you're a mom who's working at home, even if you work outside of home, Thank you. Thank you for fulfilling this God-given gift that you have. The last area Paul addresses, if we look back at verse 5, is kindness and submission. Now, I won't say much about kindness. If you've gone to high school, you know that girls can just be mean. It's part of life. Uh, And they're supposed to be kind, even kind to their neighbors, even to their enemies. But Paul also says this word, submission, He only qualifies it with one thing. He says in verse 5 that they're to submit to their own husbands. So wives are not just to submit to any man in their life. It's particular to their husbands. And if we look at Genesis 3, the fall, which we read that text earlier, we see that submission has been subverted by women. It's actually part of the curse that women bear, that they will not want to submit to their husbands. And so I think it's important, especially as we look at verse 5, to look at that last little phrase 
what's kind of at stake if a wife is not submitting to her husband, she's not loving her husband and her children and her home? It says that the word of God may not be reviled. And this is how important it is to kind of walk in the life that God's given you. Because when you don't do that, when you discard God's designs, you actually dishonor God's word and you dishonor God himself. So, so far the picture we have of women is that of course they're to be godly just like men. Here in Titus 2, it's also emphasized that women are to be teachers, older women teaching and training younger women. So let me ask you, older women in the church, who are you teaching and training in the church? Let me ask you, younger women in the church, who are you learning from in the church? Maybe you're an older woman and you're thinking, I, I, you know, I don't really have anything to offer. You know, my, my house isn't in order. I don't have the perfect marriage. My home is a mess. I'm not even sure what I would say if a younger woman approached me and said, hey, would you kind of disciple me? I don't even know what that looks like. And, and let me comfort you if that's you sitting in this room. Uh, in some ways, it would be a little um, alarming if you said, like, yeah, I have my life together. And, you know, I have lots to teach. And I could just train all the younger women in the church. Just follow me. You know, uh, in many ways, all of us, as one pastor said, are, we're just beggars who are showing other beggars where there's bread. And I think about my two-year-old daughter, Holden. Um, we've kind of catechized her. We ask her, how do we obey? And she responds, all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. Even when she's not obeying, she'll say that. But today, actually, my wife caught our two-year-old daughter telling our one-year-old son, you know, shepherd, we obey all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. And, you know, there's, I could look at that and think, well, she's a hypocrite. You know, she doesn't do that. Who is she to teach my son what it means? And I think a more charitable way would be, you know, she knows a little more, and she's just trying to help her little brother, you know? And, um, and I think that's kind of the posture we should have as we think about discipling in the church. You know, if you're an older woman you have something that younger women do not have, which is age and experience. Even if you're a new Christian, the Lord has taught you so much through just common grace that you have that to offer younger women. So let me ask you, would you consider inviting a younger woman over for a meal, inviting them over for coffee, have them come over and help fold your laundry, whatever you do, you know, maybe read the sermon passage that's going to be preached later that week. Maybe just say, hey, we're going to pray through a, a page of the membership directory. You can tell her, hey, I'm going to tell you how you can be praying for me throughout the week. Let me know how I can be praying for you throughout the week. Let this younger woman watch your daily life. Let her see how you sin and how you repent of sin, how you love your family, how you turn to prayer and you not, not to gossip. Be a model to our younger women in the church. That's what Paul's asking of you, and therefore God is asking of you. But I think this passage, especially these verses, apply beyond women in the church. Teaching one another, as many of you know, is at the heart of Christian discipleship. At Covenant Hope Church, we kind of have a phrase we use. We call this a culture of discipling. Maybe you've heard that a lot here and you thought, man, that's kind of Covenant Hope's thing. They really like a culture of discipling. But we kind of just stole that from what the Bible says. The Bible is full of stories of older saints 
helping younger saints follow Jesus. Think about Moses passing down the faith and his leadership to Joshua. Think about Jesus with 12 disciples for three years. Or Paul with Timothy and Titus, showing them what it means to be a godly man. It's presented to us over and over again. Jesus commands it in that text that's so important to us, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Don't you see that a culture of discipling is really just what Paul's talking about here in Titus chapter 2? What does this look like? Friends, I have so many examples from our own church. It looks like a group of church members choosing to live together so they can help each other follow Jesus. It looks like a brand new member and an elder studying Colossians together on Friday afternoons. It looks like a married couple who's attempting to have every member of the church over for a meal by the end of May. It looks like older and younger women gathered around the book of Galatians on Wednesday mornings or two elders getting lunch after the elder meetings to share their sin and their lives with one another to pray for one another. It looks like uh, just today I saw it as I was driving. Younger men giving rides to other saints so that they can worship God together. It looks like one brother asking another brother, how are you doing spiritually? And then listening to them. It looks like a group of mom who got together for months to discuss Christian articles together in the midst of screaming little children. It's one church member asking another church member after the service, hey, what did you learn from the sermon about God? It's an Indian woman reading the Bible with a Western University student. It's a couple who desires to have a baby, but they're praying for the health of another couple's baby. It's a group of Filipinos studying Scripture together for years, thinking about sound doctrine. Friends, it looks like celebrating the marriage of a member when you're single and you want to be married yourself. It's one brother taking a job because he wants to devote more time to his family and his church. It's sitting with another member and having that awkward conversation of rebuke because you love them. It's a group of ladies praying through the membership together on WhatsApp and texting different members and saying, hey, how can I pray for you? And even as I say that, I realize I didn't text back when I was texted about that. So ask me after the service. I'd love to tell you. Uh, it's a group of men Zooming a church member who's stuck in another country to encourage her. It's one couple opening their home every single week for a meal for anyone to come and enjoy before Bible study. Friends, some of you did this today. It's showing up 15 minutes before the service just so you can have some conversation and encourage other saints to keep following Jesus. This culture of discipling, it's not a program that you can adopt at your church. You can't just say, hey, how do we do discipling? Well, we do what's called a culture of discipling. It's supernatural. It has to happen only by God's grace. And if you skip ahead to the end of this section, verse 11, that's exactly the, the reason it's able to happen. It's the grace of God appearing in Jesus Christ. Friends, we have to pray for this in our church to continue. This is just my vantage point. I'm sure there's countless ways that this is happening faithfully in our church, and I'm sure that there are ways we could still grow. So let's pray together. Pray together. 
Now, friends, as you, as you consider this text, this is the fruit of a life that's been transformed by the good news of the gospel. And it's the fruit of teaching sound doctrine in the church week after week after week. So, friend, if you call yourself a Christian, but your life does not match up in any way with the character that Paul calls you to, to here, I wonder, could it be that you are like those false teachers in chapter 1? You've professed to know God. You say you do, but your works, your life reveals that you actually don't. And friend, if you're not a Christian, there's a transformation that you need that you cannot get at a seminar. It's one that you can't get even if you tried your hardest to do it. There's not a book you can read that can change your heart. The Bible says a leopard can't change its spots. I can't change the color of my skin. You need to be slain so that you can be made alive again. You need a death and then a resurrection. You need God to so devastate your life with the miracle of his grace. That's what you need. And friend, I hope you've seen in your own life, you know, that question, what do you want to be if if you've even become the very thing you dreamed of as a child? It's not fulfilling. It can't satisfy you. It's because God's made you for himself. That's why he created you. And friend, your own sin, your own life is evidence that you've reviled God's word. Instead of following his ways, you've chosen your own path. And we must wonder, why in the world? Because that's the reality for all of us. Why would God then send his only son to die on a cross in our place? It makes no sense at all. But friends, this is the grace that's been given to us in Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, if you're not a Christian, would you consider the death of Jesus in your place? Would you leave your sin and your old ways and place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ? Because that's what's happened to us in the room who are Christians. You might look around and say, these people don't have much in common. You know, we're from different nationalities. We're different ages. We even like different food. But we've been transformed by the shock that Jesus Christ is alive. And we've been continually changed as we've been taught sound doctrine, God's own word. Friend, that can be your story too, if you'll turn to Jesus Christ. All right, younger men, we've got one last thing that Paul wants to say. It's to us. Let's look at verse 6. Here we find younger men are to be self-controlled. One thing Paul wants to say to us, younger men. One thing, that's it. What does he say? He urges them to be self-controlled. Self-controlled, that means that you, younger man, and I'm speaking to myself, are not controlled by your circumstances or your situation. It means that you have what you already have in the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. 
So Paul's not so much kind of urging you and exhorting you, hey, you need to start doing these things. He's saying, be who you already are. Paul urges Titus to teach this. So brothers, let me encourage you. Be self-controlled. It's possible, brothers, to say no to sin. It's, pros- it's possible to walk in sexual purity, to devote yourself every single day to the scriptures. It's possible. And brothers, all of us can do this only by the grace of God and only by the help of one another. So let me encourage you. I know lots of you already do this. Meet with other brothers in the church. Share your sin. Confess your sin to one another. Ask for help. Ask for prayer. You can't do this alone. And especially, as Paul's called older men to do the same thing, ask an older brother in the church to help walk alongside you so that you can be what God's created you to be, which is a man of self-control. Friends, we see that Paul so cares about not what we do, but who we are. He wants to teach us who we are to be. And I wonder with all of us, how much time do we spend thinking about what we're going to do? Making sure that our finances are in order. Making sure that our kids are in the right school. Making sure that we kind of have that next job promotion lined up. How much time do we spend thinking about who we are? our character. Let's let Paul's encouragement hit us and be reminded that God cares more about who we are than what we do. Friends, let's pray. God, we praise you. We praise you for instructing us in your word, for teaching us what it means to live according to sound doctrine. And Lord, we praise you for transforming us, knowing that none of us could do this on our own strength. And Lord, we do pray. We ask that you would help us. Help us both to know sound doctrine, give us courage to teach one another it, and we pray by your grace that you would change us more into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.